Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First United Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. So my grandmother Strebeck, who turned 91 this past Wednesday, uh, told us a story this summer, one that we had never heard before. Uh, to my knowledge, no one else in the family had heard this story before. And so uh, what brought about the story is that Grandma just started walking with a cane just recently in the last six months and just going places, leaving the house, that kind of thing. But she didn't like the cane that the medical supply, uh, that she got at the medical supply because it was too heavy. And so um, she thought, you know, my mother uh, kind of walked with a cane to the end of her li- at the end of her life, and so I wonder if I've still got that, and it turns out she did. She had the cane that was her mother's, and so she tried it out, and she said, you know, this is perfect. It's lightweight, but it's very sturdy, and so she started telling us the story. With the cane came a story. The cane was made, she told us, on the day that my mother was born by my grandfather. So this story makes a connection to where Grandma Strebeck comes from, and she makes a connection and reminds me where I come from. This story makes me curious as well. Uh, Where did my great-great-grandfather learn how to bend a Tennessee white oak branch into the shape of a cane? And how long did it take him? I mean, he made it on the day she was born, but it, did he already have the stock ready, or was it in the steamer, or did he use some other method that I don't know about? And how did he make it smooth? And how did he finish it? And how did it last this long? And what were his challenges? You know, what were his challenges raising kids in the 19th century in Appalachia that might shed light on our challenges and my challenges raising kids in our time? Questions of origin and reason occupy our thoughts throughout our lives from the time that we're little until the time we are old. Who are we and where did we come from and why did we come from anywhere in the first place? And what about the world that we inhabit and what about the world that Jesus says that we stand to inherit? Where did these places find their start? Where did all of this find its genesis? And so we open our Bibles to page one, as Cindy read for us, and we find the words again, in the beginning. In the beginning. Genesis 1 is a liturgy. It's a liturgy that is meant to be learned and recited and performed and remembered. It's something to be worked out. In the context of life, it is a story that we pass on to our kids for all the questions that they'll have when they're our age and all the questions they'll have before then and all the questions they'll have that are unique to them that we never had, but they all come back to this place. So I've only heard the story about my great-great-grandfather one time, and so this is how storytelling works. I don't have a book. I can't look it up on the Internet I have to go, I need to hear it again to make sure I don't miss some details. So uh, this week, when I, last night, when I was trying to piece through, I was like, wait a minute, I forgot my, I don't even know my great-great-grandfather's name. And so I called in the resident uh, genealogical expert in our house, our 14-year-old son, and I said, uh, I said, hey, Ethan, I said, hey, uh, what, what was, 
what was Grandma Strebeck's mom's name? And he kind of scratched his chin. He's like, Lola May. I said, okay, what was her granddad's name? And well, that was John Green. John, and he's like, is that right, John Green? They're like, yeah, I think that's right, but we'll, we'll get Grandma on the phone just in case, just for fun. So we called her up, and she tells the story again. Yeah, it was John Green, and yeah, I don't you know how he made it. Just people passing the time, you know, just like all of us dads do when the hard work is being done somewhere else, and we have no idea what to do when the baby's being born. So, you know, you fashion something. You make a cane. You pace in the hospital. You do what you do. And so Grandma kind of caught us up on that. And... Uh, each time we hear the story, we remember it more fully. You know, the first time you hear it, you can't, you can't possibly remember all the details. You can't possibly have it in a way that you can recall it when you really need it. So that's why we tell these stories. And uh, here's, here's the biblical opportunity that's at hand as we go through this series on Genesis. This is the invitation. This is the hope. Let us remember together now our common Genesis. That's, that's the whole game. And so... The, the, the text starts, in the beginning, God created Bereshit bara Elohim. That's the opening line. And it's just this beautiful opening, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. That's the first line. How peaceful and clear and how full of promise. You know, the, the competing narratives of the creation of the world then in Mesopotamia then and in our world now, the competing narratives usually have the gods at war with each other, right? There's this cosmic war that's happening. There's this, this upheaval in the universe and all these things are happening and exploding and gods are mad at one another and they're slicing each other in half like Marvel comics and it's all happening and out of that chaos... Uh, the world is created and we come along. So it's, that's a story where everything comes because of chaos. But here in our story, we hear in the beginning, God. Just God is at peace. He's in unity of purpose. It's one God. And he existed, we find out, from the grammar, uh, prior to the story that we are about to hear. Whatever the story is, we know God was there first. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created his space and he created our space. And all of that space was working together. So the earth, we find out in the next sentence, was without form or life. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now to kind of get a feel for like how rough it was, this is where language can be so helpful. And I'm not, I'm not telling you the Hebrew words here so you can be like, oh, Ryan got out his Hebrew dictionary this week. Isn't that nice? Uh, but just because it's the poetry you can't always get in English. So this is how, this is how verse 2 starts. Right? This is how the, the, it's sort of the first paragraph of the, of the days. This is how it begins. Ha Eretz, that's the earth. So, and then Haya, it was, the earth was Tohu Vabohu. That's Bob is the conjunction and tohu vabohu. It's two things, tohu and bohu, whatever those things mean. That's what it is. So that's, that's what we're trying to translate. Some of your English Bibles will say the earth was formless and void or formless and without life. It was, it's trying to grapple with this in this poetic way that there was nothing. It was, it was just a void. There was no form. There was just whatever there was, it was dark you couldn't see, and you wouldn't have been able to make any sense of it anyways. There was nothing there. And it is into that chaos and into that void 
that God speaks, that God talks, that God creates. So this divine poetry of Genesis 1 is concrete. You know, Old Testament scholars will point out that Genesis shows rather than tells. Doesn't answer all of our questions that we have about how everything happened, but it shows us a picture, a liturgy for learning where we come from and a little bit about who God is. This is a liturgy, again, that must be learned and repeated. This is how we read Genesis. We carry it around in our back pocket. and We memorize the opening lines and we begin to see it all unfold in the days and the poetry of the whole thing. Um, I love what Tremper Longman says, an Old Testament scholar, about reading scripture in general, but about reading Genesis and when you're trying to bridge these vast worlds. I mean, we don't know what it was like directly to live in ancient Mesopotamia. Uh, so, you know, this is helpful for us. We're always bridging a gap when we're reading the Old Testament. And here's what he says about reading scripture. It kind of reminds us of the humility that we know we need to read scripture. I mean, you can be, you can be in every Bible study that there ever was and know everything data-wise there is to know about the Bible and still not have any idea who God is or have a sense of where we come from or have a connection to the God from which we come. So um, here's what he says. The simple and often neglected truth is that the best interpreters of the Bible, now that's us, that's all of us, the best interpreters of the Bible are those who can not only read the Bible, but who can read themselves, others, and the world at large. Isn't that great? I mean, we have to know the world that we live in. We have to know ourselves. We have to know our neighbors, or else Scripture won't ever make sense. We won't really be able to work it out. I mean, we'll know what it says, but we won't understand. And so this is how we begin to bridge the context of the ancient Near East and 21st century Nolan County, Texas. With great humility, we listen to what the Scriptures are telling us, and we try not to get too preoccupied with what the scriptures are not telling us, right? So we read Genesis 1 not as a comprehensive, comprehensive chronological history of the world. If we do that, we're going to get really confused and really frustrated. We're going to reach really far to try to fill in some gaps. This is not a document that God gave us to date the earth. Paying attention to science, for example, um, does not betray scripture reading, and it never has, and it shouldn't. And from ancient times, they understood they never tried to rely. The early church never thought of Genesis as a science book. You know, they were learning, they were discovering these things, and after all, it was uh, Galileo's telescope, not his Bible exegesis, that helped the church fix its wrong understanding. So you remember the Psalm 96.10, and it says, the earth cannot be moved. And so in the early days, they thought, well, that's, the earth is in a fixed, that means it's in a fixed position. It's just there. And, and, they, and there's no way that it rotates on an axis or anything crazy like that. And so Galileo comes along with his telescope, and he's like, hey, guys, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing something here. Um, I, think, I think we may have missed it on this whole thing. Maybe that wasn't a literal thing. Maybe, maybe that means that God has the earth in his hands, that it's established or something like that. Maybe that's a better reading. So science informs our scripture reading. Good exegesis includes science, welcomes science. We don't like, oh, it's, Genesis, it's the Bible versus science, God versus science. All these debates are so boring at the end of the day, and they're just never meant to be the way we've asked them to be. So... We open up the scriptures and we begin to learn the liturgy, what the scriptures are telling us. They're telling us God's story, an invitation for that to be our story. And so we read it as poetry, divinely inspired and written down to help us make sense of where we come from, why we see so much evil 
and why life can be so breathtakingly good. Listen to the poetry, the wonder, the tragedy, and we come to experience this as the story of God, our story. Um, I started to ask who the math majors are in the room, but we won't have to do that. Let's just say, if, I mean, if you like either English or math, I think you're going to like this part. This is where, this, you know, people that like poetry a lot of times, they really like math because it's like, this makes sense. They, there's a certain number of syllables and everything makes sense in this world. So just for fun, here's, here's some of the poetic elements of Genesis 1, okay? So it starts out and we read it and we're going to kind of expound on this in our Bible study on Wednesday nights a little bit, but... Um, the structure of Genesis 1, after the introductory verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. After that, from then, from 1, 2, all the way down to chapter 2, verse 3, there's seven paragraphs. And how many days? Seven days. Seven times in those paragraphs we see the word good. And seven in the ancient Near East was universally understood as the number for perfection. So isn't that great? So we got seven paragraphs, seven days, seven times the word good. It's perfect. What God is doing, whatever it is, is perfect. Now, in multiples of seven, okay, this is where the algebra comes in. Multiples of seven. um, Earth and heavens, or firmament, uh, each occur 21 times in those seven paragraphs. Seven times three. uh, Three, repetition, emphasis. And then God, the word God, is spoken 35 times. Seven times five. Light and day, the words light and day, seven times in the first paragraph, seven times in the fourth paragraph. Water, we read seven times in paragraphs two and three. Hayah, or the living beasts, the cattle, the wild things, whatever the wild beasts are, the living beasts, seven times in paragraphs five and six. Uh, it was good. We mentioned it was good seven times in seven paragraphs. And the final time, it was not only good, it was very good. The total number of words in the seventh paragraph, number 35. So, you know, this is not a coincidence, right? I mean, this is not just, this didn't just happen as someone was just scribbling down some cosmological actual thing that they, you know, this is poetry. This is designed to bring us in. Uh, a Hebrew scholar called Casuto says that the poetry in Genesis 1 is the golden thread that binds the story together. Isn't that great? Those poetic elements bind the story together. It's woven. It's like when you, you're stitching something and you pull that last strand and it all comes together. That's what the poetry is doing for us in this text. Now, many of you may have been like me. My introduction to Genesis 1 was not... Uh, learning the poetry at home or learning to say this as a prayer or anything like that. My introduction to Genesis 1 was in a youth room at Kingswood United Methodist Church in Clovis, New Mexico. And it was probably like me and Jody Rourke and two other people. And Jody, if you're listening out there, you know, I don't know. We didn't know what we were doing. But I remember our, our volunteer asked us, we had some curriculum, you know, in those days, in the 90s, it was either, you know, the curriculum was either called Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, or it was called, you know, the seven days of Genesis. And so they would give all these little scientific possibilities for how old the earth is and all the stuff. And then they would ask teenagers, okay, so if you ever write curriculum, this is a no-no. Then they would ask teenagers, entirely ill-equipped to answer the question, what do you guys think? How old do you think the earth is? And we're like, what? Like, 
We don't know, and we're all just like, well, I don't know, what about the dinosaurs? When were, when were they? I mean, we had no idea. And so we would say something even though we didn't, and the youth leader had no idea either, and she's looking at her nose going, oh, my gosh, what am I supposed to say? I'm going to shipwreck their faith before it ever gets started. And there's nothing about beginnings. There's nothing about origin. There's nothing about have you ever wondered where you come from or that you're not an accident or anything like that. It's just how old do you think the earth is? Good grief, that's a question for science class. You know, we can have that conversation, but it's not what Genesis is trying to tell us. So, what we should have had in that curriculum for teenagers is, what more do teenagers need to hear than, hey guys, how does it sit with you that God ordered a perfect world out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing, and he placed you right in the middle of it? Nothing about you is accidental, And the darkness that you see and that you feel in your bones has not overcome the image of God that is inside of you. Now, what if I had heard that instead of, you know, posturing? So we learned to read Genesis a little differently. And ultimately, the reason that that Cindy read John 1 alongside Genesis 1 is because John opens his mouth. He starts with his pen. And what are the first words on the page when we open John 1 in the beginning was the word so he's he's pulling that thread right back together and so that we're going oh wow something is happening God is doing something there's worlds that are being created here and so we learn to pay attention to Jesus who was with God in the beginning and nothing was created without God we've already seen the spirit hovering over the waters Jesus is at work Um, you know it's important to ask questions like who wrote Genesis and these kinds of authorship questions and how the earth those are great wonderful questions but they are secondary questions they're not primary questions I love what Derek Kidner says about this he says you know um, it's just like when the transfiguration of Jesus happens and Peter's on the mountain right and, and you have Moses and Elijah and there's this beautiful transformation that's happening and Peter's totally preoccupied with Moses and Elijah. Let's build some tents. Let's camp out. Let's figure this out. Let's, let's, I want to know more of what's happening. Can we write this down? Which part of the Old Testament is connected to? And what does God say? The voice comes and breaks through the heavens. This is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. So we realize anytime we open the scriptures, whether it's Old or New Testament, we are rightfully preoccupied with many, many things. But at the end of the day, we are asked by the voice of God to listen to Jesus in the story of Scripture. So in the beginning, everything God created, and we begin to see the perfect word that was spoken by God, and we remember together that where there was only chaos, where there was only darkness, and we remember in our lives where there was formerly chaos and there was formerly darkness, There's a word, there's a light, and the light has shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.